Matthew 27, beginning in verse 45. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and Mary and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. And Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. Thank you. The death and burial of Christ. Let's pause for a moment and ask the Lord to help us today. Father, our hearts truly overflow at the sight and the sounds of the cross. For we know, God, as believers in Christ, this is far more than a historical account. This is the very heartbeat of the Scripture, the very heartbeat of the Gospel, the very heartbeat of the good news of Jesus Christ, of salvation to everyone who will believe. That because of Christ and because of his death, which is not just a death, but a death on our behalf, we have hope and peace and salvation and forgiveness and newness of life and everlasting life in him. So there is nothing really more sacred and nothing really more filled with hope and joy than to approach the cross of Christ and watch our Savior bleed and see Him die knowing why He's dying and what He's accomplishing. For us as believers, Lord, it fills our hearts 
with humble gratitude and overflowing thanksgiving. Praise unto the Lord our God. Alas, and did our Savior bleed, and did our Sovereign die? Would he devote such sacred head for such a worm, a sinner as I? At the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. There really is nothing more precious than where we stand today at the foot of the cross. And so we ask, God, that you would, those of us who are gathered this morning and sitting under your word, sitting at the, at the foot of the cross, would you work an absolute revolution and transformation in our hearts? The centurion looked at the cross and he was changed. And that is our prayer for every single individual who is gathered here, that as we look upon the cross today, we might be forever changed. If we are apart from Christ, we might leave here with Christ, in Christ and Christ in us. If we are in Christ, that we might live, leave here with a greater hope and love and zeal and passion for the gospel, for the church, for Christ than ever before. Only you can do those things, and that's why we pray. We can't do anything. But you can accomplish it all, and so we lift it to you, and we ask that you work for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. So we step into a very uh, somber and sacred text today. Never before and never again will victory look so much like defeat. From the human perspective, if you had no idea what God has revealed in his word, Old Testament and New Testament, watching the Savior die upon the cross and hearing his final cry of anguish is absolutely devastating. The disciples hide, the religious leaders thump their chest in victory, hell rejoices from all appearances, all is lost. But that's the human perspective. From God's perspective, the promise has been made good, the prophecy has been fulfilled, The plan of God the Father to redeem a people unto himself has just been secured through the willing sacrifice of his beloved Son. When Christ breathed his final breath, he achieved what only he could achieve. He led the captives free. He purchased the sinner from the slave market of sin. Through his death, he gave life to the dying and perishing. From a human perspective, this was the end of the Savior and his message and his people. But from God's perspective, this was the beginning. The beginning of a global, eternal, 
movement that will not end until every single one of his children have been transformed from death to life and are gathered around his throne forever. The death and burial of Christ. And in this passage, the first thing that we take note of that we've, the passage we've read this morning would be the spiritual suffering of Christ. As we've moved through Matthew's gospel and as we have approached the, the passion, the suffering of Christ, we've learned of the different levels of suffering that Christ endured on his way to the cross. We've seen the mental and the emotional and relational suffering of Jesus in all of the rejection and all of the opposition and all of the false accusation and all of the slander and all of the mockery and all of the betrayal and denial. And as exhausting as that would be emotionally and mentally, his spiritual suffering on our behalf was far greater. But we not only have seen so far the the mental and the emotional suffering, we've also seen the physical suffering. We took note of that last week. The physical suffering of the scourging, the the physical pain of the crown of thorns, the, the physical suffering and torture of the crucifixion itself. And as excruciating as all of that physical pain and suffering would have been, his spiritual anguish on our behalf was even more. The scripture tells us this morning that from the, from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, that would have been in our, in our time, that would have been from noontime till 3 p.m., In that three-hour period of time, Christ endured on the cross an eternity of judgment for the sins of all of God's people, all of God's children. He endured my hell and your hell in three hours. Now, just let that sink in. If I stood before the Lord, the Bible says is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. If, if I were to stand before the Lord apart from Christ, without Christ, still bearing the guilt of all my sin that I've committed, it would literally take an eternity for me to pay for my rebellion against God. And Christ took the entirety of my punishment in three hours, an eternity, and yours. And every other believer who has ever lived and who ever will live until the Lord's return. It's an unimaginable weight that lay upon the Savior's shoulder. We simply can't fathom. We can't put it all. We we can't imagine eternity. We can't get our minds around time without end, much less enduring the, the, the wrath of God against sin for time without end and collapse that into a three hour period of time and lay it upon the Savior. Verse 
This is exactly what caused him as he was anticipating the cross. This is what caused him to sweat, as it were, great drops of blood in the garden as he prayed, Lord, if it, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. That's the cup. This three-hour period of time is the cup. Let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done. If this is the only way to save your people, then your will be done. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Imagine that. Christ, the perfect eternal Son of God, had never known sin. He had never tasted the vileness, the wickedness, the selfishness, the darkness, the transgression, the ugliness, the rebellion, the shamefulness, the evil, the guilt. He had never tasted any of the ramifications of being acquainted with sin. He had only known from eternity past, the eternal Son of God had only known complete and perfect and utter harmony with the Father in complete and perfect love and fellowship and union. And in one moment in time, the entire sin of the world was placed upon him. He went from an eternity of not knowing sin at all to knowing all sin in a moment. It was such a weight of darkness centered upon the cross in that moment in time that the light of the sun literally disappeared and darkness fell across the land. You see, sin separates us from God. In that moment, Jesus, who had never felt separation from his father, imagine this, he has never known an ounce of separation. There's never been any division. There's never been any distance. There's never been any disconnect. There's never been any disagreement. There's never been any separation, but that's exactly what sin does. And in that moment, Jesus, who had never felt separation from his father, felt it down to his core, felt it with every part of his being. Now, in his divine nature, he was never disconnected from the father. I and the father are one, one in essence, the triune God, one in essence, three in person. But in his humanity, the distance between he and God, because between he and God is this world of sin, that distance that he felt in the, in the heart of his humanity was immeasurable. So much so that he cries out, Psalm 22, the, when, when, he, when he tries to express the depth of his anguish, the depth of his sorrow, the depth of the loneliness. 
He reaches back into the Old Testament to Psalm 22 and he finds a passage that would express as best as he can right now what this feels like to go from knowing complete harmony and unity with the Father to not knowing him at all, it seems like. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Father never forsook the Son. That's an expression of his human anguish. Carrying the weight of the sin of the world upon his shoulders, it sure felt like the Father was gone. From his human eyes, he couldn't see the Father. From his human heart, he couldn't sense the Father's presence. Presence, the mountain of sin upon his shoulders blocked more than the light of the sun that day. It caused a a, a cavern, a sense of separation between he and the Father. He was taking my hell, my separation. He was feeling in those moments what I would have felt for eternity apart from him. My God, my God, where are you? And it was more than his humanity could endure. And then in verse 50, we hear that final cry. Evidently, this cry accompanied Jesus' final words on the cross, which are recorded elsewhere. It is finished, and Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But Matthew's recording, when he's recapturing these final moments of Christ living on the earth, he can't get past the cry. He, He can't even get to the words. He can't get past the cry. What it must have sounded like in that final moment when, when the, the sin bearing of all of God's children broke upon the Savior's back and it compelled a final cry of death from his lungs. The Savior's death cry rang throughout the whole earth, through all eternity, through the pit of hell, to the throne of glory. And it meant that God, through Christ, has saved his people from their sin. If you remember way back when, when we started Matthew's gospel, we started in Matthew chapter 1, verse by verse, through the whole gospel, and it was prophesied, it was said of Jesus, you will call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And when he gives this final anguish cry of death, that's what it meant. Matthew 1, complete. There was the spiritual suffering of Christ on our behalf. And he yielded up his spirit, the Bible says. No one took it from him. He yielded up his spirit when he had accomplished the mission. And the second thing we see in the death of Christ is that creation reacts to the death of Christ. 
Something so immense as the Son of God, the Son of glory, hanging his head upon the cross and dying. When when the Creator in his humanity died, all creation reacted. I mean, it reverberated through every realm of creation. First, we see, the, see a reaction in the realm of worship. It speaks of something incredible happening in the temple. You see, the temple was the place you go to worship God. When Christ died, the Scripture says the, the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. That, that would be the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. That most holy place was, was uh, no, no one allowed. Within, with, behind that curtain sat the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the very presence of God himself. So the temple meant Jesus, a God, was with his people. And he was concentrated, his presence was concentrated right there at the Ark of the Covenant. So you don't go behind that curtain. Except once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest sneaks behind that curtain with a rope tied around his ankle in case he doesn't survive. And he sprinkles the blood of the sacrifice on the Ark to make atonement for the sins of God's people for that year. And then he eases back out, holding his breath. And when Christ died, the final, full, complete, sufficient sacrifice for the sins of God's people, there was no longer any need for a high priest. Christ is our great high priest. There was no longer any need for the Day of Atonement ceremony. No longer would God's presence be reserved for one man once a year. Now the throne of God was open for all believers. No longer would one man enter with timidity. Now all God's people can boldly approach the throne of grace to find grace and mercy to help in time of need. No longer do we come to God at a place. Now we come to God in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Christ has opened access to the Father anywhere, at any time, from any believer, at any moment. The curtain is torn. Access is granted through Christ to the very presence of God. The gift of prayer that we so often neglect was bought and paid for by the death of Christ. By the way, every single grace we enjoy, every single benefit we enjoy was purchased and paid for by Christ on the cross. Apart from that, we would already be in hell, every single one of us. Every benefit and every grace. If we would just be faithful to pray God-sized prayers, God would be faithful to move in God-sized ways. 
the death of Christ forever changed worship. We now go to Christ. He is our temple. So the first reaction was a a reaction in the realm of worship. The second, we see a reaction in the material creation itself. The earth literally shook. The material, non-spiritual part of creation actually reacted to the death of the Creator. It sent a shock wave through the earth. The Richter scale topped as rocks split, literally split. The magnitude of the death of Christ was felt even in creation itself. So there was a reaction in the realm of worship. There was a reaction in the realm of the material creation. And third, we see a reaction in the realm of the afterlife. I don't know if you had noticed that text before, but when I read it this morning, you may have said, what? The tombs were opened and many of the old saints were raised to death and after Christ is resurrection they come out of the tombs and they walk around Jerusalem for a while before God takes them to heaven what in the world is happening I think there's three things that this first fruits kind of resurrection of the dead signify at the death of Christ first of all would be this The death of Christ defeated death for every believer. Jesus says, if you believe in me, you will not die. Death is merely a doorway into life everlasting. So when Christ died, some of those believers, those Old Testament saints who who died before the promise was fulfilled, they died hoping for the promise, waiting for the promise, yearning for the Messiah to come. They died in hopes of their salvation to come. When Christ died and defeated death for every believer, some of those believers popped out of their tomb. What did that mean? It mean that death was dead. The great Puritan John Owen said it best in his writing, there was the death of death in the death of Christ. That's the first thing. Death died for believers. The second thing is Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus claimed that if you believe in him, he has the power and authority to bring you back to life in a glorified state. That's an astounding claim, by the way. So notice that these saints came out of their tombs. They were raised from the dead. They hung around in their tombs until Jesus had come out of his tomb. Because he's the resurrection and the life. It's in him that we have resurrection and life evermore. 
And so when Jesus came out of his tomb, they came out of their tomb signifying that resurrection is truly in Jesus. In other words, God gave us a glimpse in the death of Christ of what is to come in the return of Christ. In the death of Christ, a few saints were raised. In the return of Christ, every saint will be raised. I know it's Labor Day weekend, but you should have said amen right there. Are you looking forward to your resurrection or not? I'm, I want a glorified body. Here's the third thing. The raising of the saints from the dead served to illustrate beyond a doubt the enormity, the absolute enormity and eternal significance of what had just took place. The moment Christ died, their eyes popped open. So that in itself, if nothing else had happened, served to signify the enormity and the eternal significance of what had took place. His death really brings life it's not just a myth it's not just a religious tale it's not just something for the crazy Christians that, to believe it actually happened his death literally brought life to signify that it literally brings life I mean imagine this imagine if you walked into worship 10 o'clock Sunday morning here at Grassy Pond, and there was a handful of saints from across the street sitting in the auditorium, dressed, ready to worship. What would you think? You would think, something incredible has just happened. That's the point. Something absolutely astounding has happened here because I see Grandpa walking around. What's just happened? What happened recently? Christ died. That was the point. We see a reaction in every realm of creation forth. We see a reaction in the spiritual realm. I love this story of the centurion and the soldiers, don't you? I mean, up until now, they are the hard-heartedest meanest, cruelest people you've ever known. They have beaten Christ to a pulp. They have made fun of him. They have spit on him. They have mocked him every step of the way. They have gambled for his clothes at the foot of the cross. They are the most heartless, cold, inhumane group of people you've ever come across. But when they saw what happened, they were filled. The Bible says they were filled with awe. You know, you know what it takes to fill an old soldier who kills people for a living? You know what it takes to fill him with awe? God. Nothing else. God's grace. And so he concluded, along with his fellow soldiers, truly this was the Son of God. 
You see, when you get that close to the death of Jesus, you've got to be changed. You see, the death of Christ saves sinners. That's why he died. Remember last week, everybody was coming by, the religious leaders, the crowd, they were saying, oh, if you're the son of God, save yourself. He, he said he could save others. He said he could save others. He can't save himself. But he wasn't there to save himself, was he? He was there to save people like the centurion that had just put him there. Christ literally died for those who put him on the cross. And he literally died for those whose sin put him on the cross. That's us. So we see that creation reacts to the death of Christ. Lastly, let's talk about Joseph. What about Joseph? of Arimathea. The story of Joseph of Arimathea tells us about the burial of Christ. And just like Barabbas and Simon, Joseph unintentionally portrays the gospel. Now Matthew said he was a wealthy man. There came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph. He he was a wealthy man. And did you know that wealth is the greatest obstacle to true faith in Christ, the greatest obstacle to the gospel. Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. If you got some money stashed away, that should should make you tremble a little bit. Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get to heaven. In fact, he goes on to say, it's impossible for men, but not for God's grace, right? That's the point of it being God's grace. It does what we can't. And so God's grace can save the most vile sinner, the centurion. And God's grace can save the wealthiest sinner who thinks he needs not God. He's got all he needs. There's the rich man, Joseph. God's grace can save. So God's grace has visited Joseph of Arimathea's heart and he comes at the death of Christ and he requests Jesus' body. Now that takes, that takes a lot of gumption and courage, by the way, to come up to Pilate and make this request. But it doesn't keep Joseph away. The intimidation and the, consequ- the possible consequence and the ostracism and everything that he might face for being this bold to make this request doesn't keep him away. He goes right for the source. He goes right to Pilate. He's given permission, and look what he does. He cares for the body of Christ. He took Jesus' body down from the cross. Can you imagine that process? He took Jesus' body down from the cross. He, He wrapped it in clean linen. And he laid the body of Christ in the best tomb possible that he could think of. 
is. And he laid him in that tomb. And then he had a great rock. I don't imagine he did this by himself. He, rich man, he had a ton of people there to do it for him, right? They rolled this great stone over the entrance of that tomb because Joseph wanted to make sure nobody's going to desecrate, nobody's going to harm, nobody's going to rob, nobody's going to mess with my Savior's body. He took great care. You see, with what great care and sacrifice Joseph handled the body of Jesus, why? Well, Matthew tells us, doesn't he? He was a disciple. He loved the Lord. He loved him. You see, how we treat Jesus either with care and sacrifice or not shows whether or not we love him. Whether or not we follow him. Barabbas pictures believers in salvation. Christ took our place. Simon pictures believers with salvation. Believers take up their cross and follow Christ. Joseph pictures believers because of salvation. We love him because he first loved us. As we conclude this text today, I encourage all of us, walk by the cross, see the Savior die, hear his cry, walk by that tomb, see it sealed, knowing that he died to bring you life. And if you have yet to do so today, love him, follow him to everlasting life. Let's pray. Father, we love you and praise you. There really is nothing more precious than the death of Christ on our behalf that we might have forgiveness, that we might have new life, that we might have life everlasting. Oh, Lord, we're sinners. We don't deserve anything. We don't deserve the next breath. And yet Christ yielded up his spirit on the cross after having borne the wrath of the Father against our sin that we might know the joys of eternal life. To God be the glory, great things he has done. Father, may we as your people worship you, gather around your throne and worship you with all of our being, with all of our life. And if we have yet to embrace Christ as our Lord and Savior, may today be the day that we let go of everything else and find everything we're searching for in the Savior. Lord, may you do your perfect will and work in our hearts in these next few moments. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You have been listening to the sermon ministry of Will Owens, pastor of Grassy Pond Baptist Church, Gaffley, South Carolina. Be sure to visit willowens.com to hear more sermons, read blogs, and learn more about the missions branch P67 Missions. Again, thank you for listening to Will Owens.